What's up, brothers? Good to see you guys. Amen. Uh, let's see here. All right. Let me turn this thing on. All right, guys, let's pray. We'll get started, okay? Let's pray together. Father, well, thank you so much for your grace today. Thank you that um, just what a precious song that is. And just we're reminded that we have a friend that sticks closer than a brother, Lord, the Lord Jesus. And um, we, we thank you that on the basis of who he is and what he did for us, Lord, we can come to you in prayer um, and obtain help and grace in time of need, Lord, which is for us, Lord, if we're honest, we're always in time of need, and uh, we always are needy of your grace. And so, Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus today. Lord, bless our time together. We pray that his name would be exalted, that Christ would be made much of today as we continue to study the wonder of our covenant God. Lord, we pray that you would enrich our lives and help us to trust you. Uh, Lord, knowing that you make commitments and promises that you will keep because of Christ and for Christ's sake. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let me just make sure this thing's the right one. Yeah, there we go. Huh? Yes, amen. Nothing wrong with that. Okay, guys. Well, today I wanted to just uh, cover some of the um, foundational texts for uh, the covenant with Abraham that we've been looking at. And uh, uh, I just wanted to kind of sort of list these out for us just so that we can have them in our minds. But we already kind of looked at Genesis 1 through 3, and this is where we said that the covenant was promised, uh, and we kind of see the promised character there of of the text. And then we also looked at Genesis 15, uh, and I don't know what verses, I mean, it's kind of a long passage, but 1 through, uh, 1 through 21. And this is where the covenant was, what we could say, ratified. What does it mean by, what do we mean by ratified? What do we mean by ratified? Yeah, it was inaugurated, it was enacted, right? It was, it was established there, uh, and it was established through a ritual, right? And, uh, and those types of things. We also briefly looked at Genesis uh, chapter 17, and here is where we kind of get the basis for uh, what we call sort of the dichotomous aspect of the covenant. And therefore, we can say that here... Uh, the covenant is introduced with a symbol or a sign, which is uh, circumcision, right? Um, and the importance of that, you know, that the importance of circumcision with the covenant of Abraham is important because it introduces us to the works principle in the covenant, right? That there were stipulations placed upon uh, God's covenant people, even at the Abrahamic level. Now, this now, this concept is so important that this is going to be transferred over into another covenant administration, namely the Mosaic Covenant. And by the time circumcision comes into the Mosaic Covenant, that becomes part of God's law. And so that's part of the stipulation of the law of Moses. Um, and then I want to... I want Okay, so I'm going to just give you these texts, even though I don't know that we'll look at all these today. But the other one would be like Genesis... Uh, which we're going to look at today, Genesis 22, uh, I guess we can say verses, well, Genesis 22 all the way through, but really 15 through 18, that's important because there we can say that we, we can call this the covenant uh, and Christ. Now, I know that the covenant and Christ is all throughout, but there's reasons why we're connecting Christ here to 
chapter 22, and, and you'll see that. But this is the covenant in Christ. And then uh, let me give you a couple passages out of the New Testament. And this is Galatians chapter 3, um, verses, let me see here, what did I put down? Oh, 15 and 18 again. I guess the Spirit inspired 15 and 18 a couple times there for us. <laughs> and then Galatians uh, also chapter 4, verses 1 through, uh, what is it, 21, I think it is. And this is what we could call the covenant fulfillment, okay? Uh, something like that, if it's not spelled. And this is what I just call part 1 and then part 2, so you can just put this down here as well. Uh, that's really the way that I break down the covenant with Abraham in light of everything that goes on in Scripture exegetically, right? So we kind of looked at, uh, you know, we looked at a definition of the covenant. We looked at some of the components of the covenant and things like that. But really, this is some of the exegetical ground for the covenant itself. Initially, it is promised to Abraham. Then it is formally ratified to Abraham through the ritual there. And then it is uh, given a sign uh, a symbol, a token, a pledge. You know, theologians use different words, which is circumcision. Uh, and that becomes really important as we move on. And then today, I wanted to talk about, a little bit at least, chapter 22, the co- covenant in Christ. So turn there with me, Genesis chapter 22. Uh, you guys know what this account is about, right? Um, what happens in chapter 22? Mm-hmm. In an attempt, an attempt to sacrifice what God intervened mm-hmm. and provides a ram in the thicket instead. Correct. That's right. That's that's um, that's exactly what it's about. Now, why did we choose to go here? And if you'll notice, I highlight verses 15 and 18. And just look quickly there, verses 15 and 18, uh, because there we have sort of a continuity with the original promise. Okay. Uh, It says here, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will... I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Now, that's an interesting kind of factor that's introduced here. The gate of, its, of your enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abram returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived in Beersheba. So right there, we have sort of the covenant reiterated. We could say like the covenant is... Uh, sort of confirmed to Abraham again, and it makes sense because we're getting ready to pick up, you know, the life of Isaac, and Isaac sort of becomes the the next major patriarch, right? And in Isaac, we kind of have a covenant fulfillment right there, which is he is the child of promise. So Isaac introduces us to the promise, right, that God is fulfilling his uh, covenant through a promise, not through the law, but through the promise, and that's going to become uh, really instrumental for us, but uh, let me see. I brought, as you can see, I brought my um, I brought my little my my uh, laptop today, only because there's a lot of stuff here that I wanted to point out. And the reason I turned to the entire chapter is really because, I mean, the whole chapter is really about Christ. It's prefiguring Christ, right? What in what way does Isaac prefigure Christ? Yes, sir. So he's his only son? Yeah, that's right. Anything else? Any other way? Being a sacrifice. 
being a sacrifice, right? That's right. Carrying the wood reminds you of the cross. I think so. I mean, what's that? Yeah, he went up a hill, right? Now, here's a question we have. Is this just sort of fancy allegory, just looking at the text and going, oh, there's some things here that kind of show us that Isaac is kind of like a type of Christ, you know what I mean? Or do we have exegetical basis to do that? Right? Is there exegetical justification to do this, right? To make the connection because, well, well just because there's similarities, I mean, do we actually have warrant to, 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 to seek Christ in Genesis 22? Right? I would say, of course we do. Uh, so, so like, for example, if you turn to Hebrews 11, Right, Hebrews 11 is a, um, I think it's about as explicit of a statement as you get, giving us some sort of hermeneutical basis for why we can approach Genesis 22 in a Christocentric fashion. You see in Genesis, or excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 17, going all the way down to verse uh, 19. Somebody want to read that? Brian, can you read that for us? Oh, sorry, Keith. Yes, sir, 17 to 19. Uh, a lot of times you have type typology 
And what you have is sort of similarities. Uh, is that the right way? And then you have contrasts, right? Uh, sometimes, sometimes if you look at uh, sometimes if you look at uh, typology only through the eyes of similarities, then you get in trouble, right? So David is David a type of Christ? Of course, right? So if you look at only the similarities between David and Christ, you get in trouble because David was an adulterer and a murderer, and Jesus was not, right? So similarities in typology only go so far. Therefore, contrast is essential to, to, to the, the hermeneutics of typology. And so that's what I want to give you here is that there are similarities and then there are contrasts. Some of you guys pointed out some of the similarities already. Um, does anybody need all this still? Everybody good here? Yeah? Take a p- you just finished? Okay, so as long as Marie's done. That's all we need. I guess, you know, with your, your phones now, I mean, you could just zoom in, take a picture, bam. You know what I mean? Got you on record. Even got you doing it. Um, okay, so let's, let's go through just some of the similarities first. Okay, so similarities. Number one, Isaac is the son of man. Jesus, right, is also called the son of man. Man, even though Isaac is not necessarily called that, but that's who he is. He is the son of a man. Yeah, and um, and so you see kind of the importance of that. Obviously, that you know what God was going to do in the son of man was that He was going to bring forth a real son of man, a real incarnate person. You know, you know what I'm saying. And uh, and and I guess we should point out too. You know, our nifty little typological triangle. You guys remember this? Come on, man. I've done this a hundred times. You guys know what this is all about, right? So you have the heavenly archetype, right? Uh, Is that how you spell? No, it's not. So you have the archetype here. Then you have the historical type here. And then you have the antitype. Don't ask me what antitype means again. Right? You You have the sort of the archetype. And what's the archetype? Well, this is sort of the heaven, heavenly Reality, we could say, right? This is the heavenly reality. And what we have here is kind of like if you want, you know, you have sort of Jesus, you know, you have the son of the son of man, son of God, whatever you want to say. And then here you have Isaac, right? And Isaac becomes a type, a historical type of the heavenly archetype. The historical type becomes the basis for as we move down the corridors of time to the antitype, which is Jesus, right, incarnate, right, and that's who he is. That's what he, that's what he comes to fulfill. He comes to fulfill uh, all, that is, all that is embodied here. But when Jesus comes in fulfillment of this, what's really happening is that this is coming down. You see that? So what arrives in the antitype is actually the heavenly reality. <laughs> you see that? Very important, guys, because, because Isaac, if we take this, you know, if we understand this, you know, Isaac, why did God do all this? I mean, there's no really introduction why, like in the book of Genesis, it doesn't tell you, like, this is why God's doing this, right? God did this for the same reason that he did Melchizedek, right? He gave Melchizedek because in the heavenly realms, he sort of had this planned out, 
You see what I'm saying? And that who, it sort of represents who Jesus really is, right? And so that, it, 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 you know, if we follow sort of the heavenly type, the pattern in heaven, then he's going to give us a tangible historical pattern on earth that we can understand, that we can see, that we can, you know, that can enter into the progress of redemptive history, leading all the way up to the fulfillment of that, right? Same exact thing with Melchizedek, right? Remember what it says in Hebrews about Melchizedek. Melchizedek was given as a type of the Son of God. It says he is made like the Son of God. What does that mean? It means that Melchizedek has a, has a pattern that was already, in a sense, like a mold that was already made for him. And that mold was made before Melchizedek came and was born, right? And that mold is the heavenly Christ. That's what Hebrew says. He was made like the Son of God. He, and notice he doesn't say he was made like the Son of Man. It stresses, it stresses in a sense, Jesus' uh, uh, sort of ontological identity from all eternity. <laughs> so that's, what, that's what he represents. So anyway, this is what's always, in my opinion, this was always is going on in typology. You can, you can use this with almost anything. Take the temple, put the temple here. We know there's a heavenly temple, heavenly sanctuary of God. That archetype, the word arch just means original. It's from the Greek word archase, which means beginning or original, right? So the, the, the heavenly archetype of the temple becomes the basis for the historical types, tabernacle, Solomon's temple, and then that is fulfilled ultimately in various ways, like Jesus is the temple, the believer is the temple, but ultimately, right, we're looking for the heavenly temple, the new heavens and the new earth, which corresponds with the original pattern that God gave. See, that's always what's going on in typology. This helped me so much. This is in um, Gerhardus Voss's little book on the uh, little commentary on the book of Hebrews. And I actually have that in here, the, the way that he's drawn it up. And that just has become the basis for all theologians everywhere now. It's like, oh, yeah, finally somebody did it right, you know. And that, that's exactly right. So this is one similarity. He's the son of man. Um, he's, the, he's the only son, right? Uh, he's also appointed, like you said, he's appointed as a sacrifice, right? Um, he's appointed as a sacrifice. Was Jesus sacrifice? Yes. Right? So there's sacrificial significance. What else? Anything else? You guys point out some other stuff. How about this? There is a mountain associated with right uh, the with Isaac. There's a mountain. What mountain is is this? Mount Moriah, right? What what, what is Mount Moriah, by the way? Where is that? You guys know what significance Moriah plays in the Bible? What happens at Mount Moriah? Is that also called Maybe. No, it's not where Zina is. Um, Mount Moriah is the location of the building of the temple. So it's the place, well, he, no, but it's the place where the temple will be built. The Solomon's temple will be built on Mount Moriah. But that, that significance is ultimately uh, uh, fulfilled in another mount. Mount, and you guys said it. If you go to Israel with us this year, you will be standing at the foot of Golgotha. And actually, you will even see on the side of the hill a skull that has been carved into the hillside. And, 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 and you know, th- this is what's crazy about archaeology is you'll find, and I learned this by going to Israel, actually. It's kind of where I learned it. But they, they sort of stipulate that there's about 300 years between... Uh, like like in terms of accuracy, 
there's kind of 300 years of sort of ambiguity when it comes to archaeology. So it's like, you know, the place where Golgotha is claimed to be there uh, is, you know, it's kind of like, well, we have evidence that this is where Golgotha is at, and we seem to have some pretty good, like a pretty good line of evidence for that. But in these centuries, there's kind of a breakdown. We're not sure. You see what I'm saying? So some of it is conjecture. Like, like for example, Jesus' grave. Where is it at? Is it at the garden tomb? Is it at the holy sepulcher? You know, there's different locations. And so there's sort of a, there's a debate. And why does that um, debate even exist? Is because there's usually a few centuries that kind of separate us from knowing for sure if that's the location of this or that. That's typically where uh, what happens there in, in archaeology. So, um, yeah, that's right. So, Mariah, what else? What else is similar here? Somebody mentioned the wood. Oh, I agree with that. Jesus and carried his cross. What else? There's so many. Only son? Okay, son of man, only son, right? Only son. Of course, there's the resurrection here. There's a little uh, resurrection here, right? That's supposed to be a U and an R. My wife always tells me, just slow down. People will wait. (laughs) True. How how about this? Uh, You know, in this situation, if we take the whole situation... There is obedience that is demanded uh, of the Son. Obedience that is demanded of the Son, right? So Adam had to obey uh, the decrees of his Father, so to speak, right? He had to obey, he had to submit to the will of the Father, uh, just like Christ had to submit to the will of the Father. How about this? How about, how about the, the role of the Father, Right? Uh, what did the fa- what, what was the role of the father with Isaac? To what? Oh, they said beat him up. <laughs> That's kind of crude, Kadev. Okay, yeah, that's right. So he was the one performing, in a sense, right? Performing the 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 penalty. I guess we could even say, right? of death, right? And so in the same way, the father of Christ, you know, he is the one that uh, you know, he 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 is the same one performing, right? Sort of the penalty on the cross. He's the one laying his wrath upon his son. So you have all these similarities. Yes sir. Uh performing. So clear. What are you talking about? It's better than your doctor. Uh, yeah. How would the providing of the sacrifice apply? Is it applied in there? Is God providing the ram that was caught in the thicket? Mm. Providing the lamb. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing. Um, you have those. What about um, what about some? Okay, everybody's got this, right? What about some contrasts? What what are some contrasts? Important contrasts that we need to point out here. So no longer similarities, but now what are the ways in which there's a departure? Uh, That was my first thing, yeah. So on this side, you know, we have a sinner. On this side, Jesus is sinless. Yeah. 
Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. He was worthy of death just by virtue of being a sinner, yeah. right? It's like the problem of evil. You know, people ask me all the time, you know, does this person deserve this to happen? And my answer is usually kind of harsh. But I say, no, actually, you deserve far worse. You know what I mean? So whatever point of evil you can talk about, murder, rape, or whatever, the reality is is because of sin, you de- what you deserve is infinitely worse than what you could ever think of, you know, which is the eternal wrath of God. You know, and by then, you know, people are usually mad and everything, but, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I actually have that, is that Isaac was actually spared, and uh, Jesus was not spared, but he was, he was slaughtered, right? Slaughtered, he was slaughtered. It's like John Piper points out, in heaven, we're going we're gonna to sing about awful things, <laughs> Right? Because Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 11 talks about that we will be singing, for you were slaughtered, and you obtained by your own blood people for your own possession out of every tribe, tongue, nation, and, you know, all of that. So, uh, that's right. It was, it was not uh, uh, vicarious, right? Or we can say not, right? But his was vicarious. He did stand in place for others, Right? Um, now, now in the similarities, there is, so look at the text, right? Look at uh, 22 verse 14. The ram in the thicket is the substitute. So there is similarity in substitution, uh, the concept of substitution. Even here, Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said for in the mount, the Lord, no, 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 in verse, no, no, verse 13, I'm sorry, the end of verse 13 he said, Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Wow. So that's what I mean, that the similarities end. How about this? Uh, Isaac was largely ignorant of the sacrifice. Jesus was pure volition, right? What does that mean? Yeah, that's right. He was fully, fully uh, volunteering himself, right? He, 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 you know, even though, and I, I guess you can make an argument for the fact that Isaac also volunteered himself in the sense that he was willing to obey, you know, his, his father. But at the end of the day, he was largely ignorant as to what God was doing. Jesus was not ignorant. He did it with full understanding, full knowledge. Yes, sir? It's a contrast, but I don't know if it's significant, but the age, Isaac being a young man. A young man. Yeah, yeah, that's also that's also true. So you, I mean, you see this, right? You see so many different things. Um, yeah, that's right. I mean, there's all kinds of different things that are being offered up there. Uh, let me see here. Let's uh, let's sort of back up and talk about this a little bit more. Let me read to you an, uh, a really neat uh, quote here by Meredith Klein on this whole. Uh, typological significance. Listen to this. He says, God was pleased to constitute Abraham's exemplary works as the meritorious ground for granting to Israel after the flesh, that's little physical Israel, the distinctive role of being formed as the typological kingdom. Now, that's interesting because what he's saying is, you know, as, you know, aside from all of this, what he's saying that in terms of the covenant with Abraham, the reason why God tested him is that this was almost like a probationary period for, for, uh, for Abraham. He had to pass this test. And by passing this test, what that, 
uh, did is it ushered in Israel into this privileged position of being God's typological kingdom people. Okay, and that's exactly what transpires. He says, within this typological structure, Abraham emerges as an appointed sign of his promised messianic seed. Wow, that's interesting. So what he's saying is that, you know, uh, uh, through his obedience and the blessing of his people, we see something of a type of Christ, even in Abraham, right? That even, even Christ, his obedience leads to the blessing of his people, very similar to Abraham. And the reason why, he says, is because Abraham is God's covenant servant. And that's exactly what Jesus is. He's the covenant servant of God. He said his fulfillment of his covenant mission was the meritorious ground of the inheritance of the antitypical, we're talking about Christ, the antitypical eschatological kingdom by the true elect Israel of all nations. It's a little bit of a mouthful right there. <laughs> but what he's saying is that everything, and this is what helped me so much with covenant theology, is that everything that you see in Israel on the historical level has a typological function. Everything, right? Everything from the people to the kingdom to the kings to their temple to their conquest over their enemies, everything uh, has some sort of uh, uh, anti-typical fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And that's why we said, you know, that uh, everything that uh, is contained in the covenant of Abraham is ultimately fulfilled uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, that's that's where. So think about it in terms of the original promise that's made to Abraham in Genesis 12, that what God is promising there is nothing less than the ultimate kingdom of God. Right. And that's exactly what Hebrew says that he was looking forward to. So you have all of these different uh, uh, contrasts and, and different things. Now, because I gave you all those scriptures, let's turn to Galatians again. Galatians and I want you to see in Galatians two passages that help us to really start talking about the fulfillment of all of this. Galatians chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 4, which we've gone over before. This is so interesting, what, what you'll see here in Galatians chapter 3. Of course, we understand that what was going on in the Abrahamic covenant is that God was preaching the gospel to Abraham beforehand. That's told to us very clearly uh, in, verses, uh, in verse uh, uh, 8 of Galatians 3, right? That's exactly what's being said there. After talking about his justification, look at verse 7. Therefore, to be sure, it is those who are of faith that are the sons of Abraham. So right there, it's like we're almost being told that the entire matrix of Scripture is sort of situated in the context of faith. That faith, and that's why... We have to speak about Abraham and the covenant that God made with Abraham containing two things, right? In a sense, there is the covenant of grace. What is the covenant of grace? Well, the, the, the covenant of grace is God's commitment, right? His commitment to save us by faith, right? If you want to get real reformed, you would say, by faith alone. R.C. Sproul would be proud, right? It's his commitment, because commitment is what a covenant is all about, right? What is a covenant? It is an oath-bound commitment of God or man. 
Uh, but here in the covenant of grace, which is situated throughout Scripture in places like Genesis 3.15, uh, you find it again in the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that's made there again, and ultimately fulfilled in the new covenant, okay? Um, any questions about any of that? That's, that's a lot of stuff. Just feel free to stop me at any time. But in the covenant with Abraham, you have the element of the covenant of grace because we're told that the gospel is there, you see? Uh, and, and the people that are going to be ultimately partakers, beneficiaries of the covenant are those that are by faith or according to faith. In Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Uh, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. That's such a important passage there, verse 9, because verse 9 is telling us is if you want to understand soteriology, you need to look at Abraham. Right? Abraham kind of becomes like the basis for soteriology in the Bible. And that's what Romans chapter 4 is all about. He is the prototypical Christian in a sense, right? He is the one that we are to look for as the pattern through which and, and how God saves his people. Yes, sir? What, is that, what does that word mean? Oh, sorry, so, soteriological? Just, yeah, it's, uh, it just comes from soteriology, which means the doctrine of salvation. Right, so he becomes like, yeah. So be, he becomes like the very, the what now, the pattern. Yeah, he becomes the pattern of salvation for everyone. I guess I should have just said that, you know. But <laughs> I get a little zealous up here. Sorry. Now, now, now. This is now. This is what's. This is what's really amazing here. Verses ten down to verse fourteen. To me, it's just absolutely amazing what's going on here right he says as many as are the works of the law are under a curse so what he's referencing there is people who are bound to the old covenant economy uh especially now the judaizers who are twisting the old covenant in the way they want to you know through works obtain righteousness but what he's saying is that none of the law itself will cut you off from doing that because it says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law to perform them. In other words, what he says is if you want to, if you want to be justified on the basis of works, you're doomed to perform the works that you profess, which no, no one can do. Okay? And so he says, now, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. No, there he's quoting Habakkuk. The righteous man shall live by faith. Uh, and then he says, however, the law is not of faith. Wow. That's a big one, folks. Why is that a big one? Because you have in Scripture a works principle and a grace principle. And what we were just told here, the, the, when it says the law is not of faith. That's a hotly debated phrase in Pauline theology. What in the world does that mean? Now, this is where our Baptistic covenant theology, uh, you know, is very comfortable uh, with what we believe about covenant theology, whereas Presbyterian models of covenant theology have to kind of squirm around a little bit and try to figure out what is Paul saying here, because in, in Presbyterian models of covenant theology, the Mosaic covenant is the covenant of grace, just under a different administration. Okay, we disagree with that. 
you would say, no, <laughs> it doesn't take a, well, I don't want to insult anybody because most pres- Presbyterians are far smarter than me, but w- what I would say is that it's not difficult to see that the, the, the Mosaic Covenant is a covenant of law. It is a, co- I mean, it's called the covenant of law. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it is the law, right? But that it's also works-based, you know what I'm saying? And how do you know that? Because throughout the, the, throughout the law and the giving of the law, I think on three different occasions, the Jews take the oath of the covenant. They swear the oath of the covenant themselves. You find it, I know for certain, you find that in Exodus chapter 19, I think it's verse 7. Somebody look that up real quick. And then maybe there's a few parallels in your Bibles you can find from that. But Exodus 19, I think it's verse 7. And then I think in Exodus uh, uh, 23, again, you get this sort of, you know, this oath that the people take saying, we will perform all of these things. So, what's it, what is it? What does it say? So Moses came and told the elders of the people in the pit before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Mm -hmm. All of these words we will do, right? And do you have a cross-reference there to uh, chapter 23? What's that? What is it? Maybe. I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of like a memorial kind of covenant that he made with the people there. Uh, did you have one? What does it say? Yeah, it's almost like this, you guys. It's like you have the Mosaic Covenant operating here. And essentially, it follows the works principle. But underneath it, and transcending it, you have the Abrahamic Covenant that's still operative, which is, in a sense, the covenant of grace. God's commitment to save people by grace. And that, in a sense, supersedes your obedience or disobedience here, right? Uh, so that you, even though you may have broken the law, you lied, you stole. You know what I mean? Maybe take God's name in vain. Are you therefore hopeless for all eternity? No. We would say you can still be saved, but it's not because you obeyed the law, it's because you believed in the promise. You had faith. You see? Any questions about that? Anyone? Yes, sir. You know, speaking about the Abrahamic covenant being a covenant of grace, and, and you're also saying it also has this work principle in that. Mm-hmm. Right? That's why we said, you know, last week that the Abrahamic covenant is essentially dichotomous. It has two parts. Mm-hmm. It has two aspects to that. Especially, you'll see that especially in Genesis 17, right? Because verses one through eight. There in Genesis 17 is all about promise, 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 promise. And then in beginning in verse 9, then God tells Abraham, you must obey. You must uh, give your people 
the sign of circumcision. And if they disobey, they will be cut off. They have broken my covenant. So that shows you that it's not pure grace. If it's pure grace, guess what, guys? Good news, right? And this is kind of dangerous for me to say, but if it's pure grace, you can't break it. Not ultimately, because then it, it would cease to be grace. It would cease to be um, salvation, true salvation. So, you know, you're, you're sorry, but your Calvinism prohibits you from drawing the conclusion that if you are truly in the covenant of grace, you can break the covenant of grace, lose eternal life, right? And, and uh, be back to, you know, square one in a sense. Yes, yes, sir. He knows. See, he knows. Well, this is the crazy part. He said that we were talking about salvation. Mm-hmm. And he said that a person that's saved, if they live a rebellious life and they die, they could lose the salvation. Meaning, sure. they'll lose the promise that they were given. Yeah. You're going to read in the Bible a lot in the Old Testament. You're going to read a lot about this is an eternal covenant. This is an everlasting inheritance. This is an everlasting reward. All of this stuff, right? The land will be given to you for an everlasting possession. You know, all of these everlasting passages. The only way that that's fulfilled is through the covenant of grace, ultimately resulting in the new heavens and the new earth, which is, remember what Hebrews 11 said, which is exactly what Abraham was looking for. It's what he was looking for from the beginning. He wasn't looking for just a temporary long-term stay in Canaan. He was actually looking for a whole new earth, a whole new world, right? Uh, That has foundations that are not. See, it's like I think we underestimate Abraham's view. I think we underestimate Abraham's theology. He understood that what was necessary was something other than this present world. That this present evil age is just not what God intended, You know, there's sin everywhere, there's enemies everywhere, there's chaos, there's war everywhere. And so certainly he understands that. But if before I run out of time, (laughs) I knew I would would do this to myself. If we keep going here in Galatians, I want to just show you something um, in Galatians. As he goes on to say, this is interesting. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So he takes away this. Jesus takes away that. We no longer have to obey the law perfectly in order to remain righteous. You see that? Uh, He takes away the burden of the law, the legal demands of the law. How? By just arbitrarily moving them aside? No, by keeping the law in our place and fulfilling the justice of God. God's law has has to be obeyed, guys. God's law cannot just be set aside. Someone has to obey God's law. You can't do it. I can't do it. Abraham couldn't do it. Moses can't do it. David didn't do it. Uh, The prophets couldn't do it. John the Baptist couldn't do it. Nobody could do it. The only person that can do it is Christ, and only he removes us from the curse of the law and says, having become a curse for us, for it is written, the curse, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, this is interesting. Verse 14. In order that... See, I think sometimes we forget. We stop. I think we're all familiar with that verse. Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree, right? We forget the next verse. The next verse has the purpose clause. In other words, all of this exposition is for this purpose clause right here. So that, or in order that, what? In Christ Jesus, the blessing of what? 
Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that, watch this, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Wait a minute. So what that means is that, I'm thinking I'm going to look at the board and I'm going to find like I wrote it up here already and it's not. (laughs) But what that means is that Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that original promise is actually the promise of what? That's what's promised there. God is promising to give his people, to indwell his people with his spirit. And that doesn't become abundantly clear until you really begin to flesh out, you know, the covenant with Abraham further and further. But look at the way that Paul thinks about it. And do you know why it is that Paul takes us to the spirit? It's because of eschatology. It's because of eschatology. It's because by fulfilling the law, removing its curse, granting us the benefits, the blessings of the covenant with Abraham, we enter into our eternal reward. And that eternal reward is already not yet. We already have possession of it by virtue of the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit ushers us into a new age. It ushers us into, if you would, a new realm. You see what I'm saying? I need some feedback on that. You guys got to give me something. Any questions or feedback? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. (laughs) No, I agree. It's just, um, for example, as we have no time whatsoever, once again, in Ephesians chapter 1, what on earth... Does Paul mean when he says, Ephesians 1.13, that after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, having also believed, there's the crucial Abrahamic component, faith. He says, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's a very good literal wooden translation. How many people in your translations do you have the holy, uh, uh, the promised Holy Spirit? Does anybody have that? No good. I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like that. I actually like the more literal, the Holy Spirit of promise. Because what it does is it makes promise not just an adjec- adjective to the Spirit, but it makes promise sort of its own substantive, its own noun, its own idea, Right? And so it's like, what promise? Right? So this right here is initiating us into the covenant promises of God, which always, when you see promise in your Bible, it's like red flags should go up. Or good, red flags are bad, right? How do you say good flags? But you should, it's a good indication. The Bible is trying to connect you back to the promise. Always, always goes back to the Abrahamic promise which there in its initial promise form, we are speaking specifically of the covenant of grace that is in operation. And so the Spirit of God is the Spirit of the covenant promise of God that was originally found in Abraham. Okay? And, and, and that's why Galatians goes on to say, so that we may receive the promise of the Holy Spirit through faith. 
the, the spirit is everything, you guys. Um, we have to probably explore this a little bit more, but the spirit and eschatology go together, right? Uh, the spirit is the eschatological spirit of God, right? I mean, I, I, is there any other way I can say it? I mean, yeah, any questions, any other might have questions. Yes, sir. Well, I was in Second uh, Corinthians 3, and how it talks about the ministry of the Spirit. Yes, sir. The ministry of the law. Yeah. And how it talks about the law is the ministry of condemnation. Um, but Paul said, uh, but to this day, verse 15, he says, but to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we always unveil face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord is the Spirit. Yeah, that's right. And then, um, and then also in uh, in First Corinthians fifteen, uh, verses forty-five, I think down to verse fifty-two, the Apostle Paul talks about how the Spirit is the Spirit of the heavenly image, and so when a person gets born again and possesses the spirit of god it's like god has put a new image upon you it's the heavenly image it's no longer the image of the earth the image of adam now you bear the image of christ which is the heavenly image you see what i'm saying that's too much we 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 can't i don't even know if people in the hallway can hear us but that's a little bit too much for us to get into right now but uh hopefully you appreciate all the text that i gave for the abrahamic covenant uh, we will never come to the bottom of these things, but um, hopefully those texts will will develop in you more study uh, and further investigation. Also, if you have uh, questions about the Abrahamic Covenant or anything like that, please let me know. Write them down. Bring them to Sunday school. Bring them the next week. Uh, if you let me know in person, maybe I'll bring them up in class just so that we can handle them uh, here. Okay, thanks, you guys.